your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using the Bible in your row, that's found on page 1007. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you. We'd be delighted for you to to use it. As a congregation, we've been studying Hebrews for eight-ish months, uh, and we come to what is undoubtedly the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews. It's the by faith chapter, or sometimes it's called the hall of faith chapter. Uh, chapter 11. And so as we get to to this chapter, we're going to slow down. We're going to work fairly methodically through it, verse by verse, uh, because this chapter teaches us the most essential topic for the Christian life, and that is faithfulness. What what faithfulness is, what faithfulness looks like. Last week, we, we looked at this from the individual standpoint of what does it mean to be a faithful Christian? And we said that the faithful Christian is the one who entrusts himself or herself fully to God. Today, we're going to look once again at faithfulness, and we're going to look at what it means to be a faithful church. So, so what happens when faithful people come together? They form a faithful church. Now, I have two goals in looking at the faithful church today. The first is that every one of us would consider our own contribution to the faithfulness of the church. In other words, the church is is the sum of its parts. Now, in, in the grace of God, it's exponentially greater than the sum of its parts, but a church can only be faithful if it's made up of faithful members. There's no such thing as a faithful church when the members are not faithful to the life of the church, and particularly faithful in service to Christ. And so we're going to enumerate several marks of Christian faithfulness today, and I want to ask you to apply them to your own heart, to test yourself according to these things and see how you can grow in these areas, and I'm going to continue to do the same in my own life. The second reason we're, we're looking at this is because we are in a, in a season of nominating, training, and electing future elders and deacons at First Scots. There's so many different things to look for in church leadership, and my hope is that as we, we look at faithfulness today, it will sort of help you to fine-tune what you look for in potential elders and deacons of the church. You, you need to look for men who exemplify these things. They're, they're not going to be perfect men by any stretch, but they're men who uh, who try to live lives that establish, uh, that reflect the sort of faithfulness that we're talking about here. And they should be men that you can look at and say, yes, those are the kind of men who will help this church grow in faithfulness. So let's look at God's word now, Hebrews 11, just the first two verses. This is the word of God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Uh, When Stephanie and I were first married, we were friends with an older couple who told us a story from when they had first gotten married. Uh, there was one recipe that the husband loved for his mother to make. It was his absolute favorite meal, and so his wife wanted to make that meal for him. So the new wife asked her new mother-in-law for the recipe, and she got the recipe. She worked very hard. She fixed him the meal, 
And when he took the first bite, it was clear from his face that it wasn't like Mama used to make. Well, it turns out the mother-in-law just wasn't ready for her son to enjoy some other woman's cooking. And so she left out one of the key ingredients in the recipe. You know, some recipes, ingredients can be omitted and it's no big deal, but others, when they're left out, everything goes wrong. You know, the same is true of the church of the Lord Jesus. There, there are a lot of things churches do. There are a lot of things that churches can focus on, but there are only a few things that are essential for a church to be a faithful church. And if you omit any of those things, everything goes wrong. Uh, it just doesn't work the way it should. And so we're going to look this morning at four things. We'll say four ingredients for a faithful church, and they build on each other. The first is the faithful church is Scripture-saturated. Second, it is Christ-centered. Third, it is ministry-minded. And fourth, it is prayer-powered. A faithful church must be scripture-saturated. Sound biblical teaching must seep through and saturate everything that the church does. Everything the church does ought to be connected to scripture. Now, no church is going to deny that. I've never heard a church say, "Eh, we really don't pay a whole lot of attention to the Bible here. And yet, it's often denied in practice, isn't it? Scripture-saturated churches not only give lip service to the Word of God, but actually treasure the Word of God. To treasure something is to hold it in highest regard. I, I have a few things I treasure in my life. I treasure my wife and my children. I treasure close friends. And I go to great lengths to protect and preserve and to enjoy these things. The scripture-saturated church is, is one that will go to great lengths to ensure that the truths of scripture saturate and permeate every square inch of the life of the church. I'm blessed to serve a church that functions this way. Yes, we always have room to grow, but our big duty is to hold on to that. I, every once in a while, if I'm preaching a hard passage, a difficult passage that steps on people's toes, somebody might say to me, were you, were you nervous to, to preach that passage? And I'll say, you know, in this church, I'm more nervous to skip over it because this is a church that wants to hear the hard truths of Scripture. It's a, it's a church that wants to be Scripture-saturated because we know that if we're not Scripture-saturated, we are going to be world-saturated, aren't we? Uh, Romans chapter 12, look there with me for a moment. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul understands every day and in a multitude of ways, our minds, our ears, our eyes, and our hearts are bombarded with the untruths of this world. Every day there is pressure for our minds, our hearts, our lives to conform to this world. And so what does he say? Look there, Romans 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
You know, Paul's saying, believer, this is for you, First Scots, you today. You have two options. Either your life is going to be conformed to the patterns of this world, and that's just what happens when you do not pay attention, when you are careless about your life. It is either, you can either be conformed or you can be intentionally attentive to the scriptures and be transformed. One of those two things is happening in you every single day. You are either being conformed to this world or transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, Hebrews has been such a great example for us of that reality because it's a church that uh, was full of people who were tempted to drift. They were a people who, who were, were walking by sight and not by faith. They were people who were tempted to turn away from Christ in order to return to the ease of normal life outside of the church. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to give up everything it cost them to follow Christ. And so this letter is written to them, and the author of this letter, it was, I think it was probably a sermon that was preached to them, and then in one way or another, the manuscript has been passed down. But he's writing, don't let go of the scriptures. And so that's why he's constantly digging back into the Old Testament. This whole chapter's got 16 different Old Testament characters. He's saying, go, look at, look at Abel. Don't give up on that example. Don't give up on the example of Moses. Don't let go of that. And he'll go through them. But this whole book, reference after reference, is showing us the centrality, the primacy of the word of God in the life of the church. Because if the church is not intentionally scripture-saturated, it will be world-conformed. There's pressure every day. And you realize that, I hope, that churches that become conformed, that dri- the churches that drift away from Scripture never say, oh, we, just, we think we're going to drift away today. You know, we've got a 10-year plan for drifting. That's, that's what, that's what uh, this year is going to look like. We're going to drift as far as we can from the scriptures. That's not how it happens. It happens by putting other things ahead of the word of God. It, it's, it's like Hemingway, how he talked about going bankrupt. It happens very slowly and then all at once. Drifting happens very slowly until suddenly you have no idea where you are and Christ is nowhere to be found. What does it look like? Well, in the life of the church, it looks like a, a, a people who, who simply are looking for a country club. They're looking for a comfortable place to belong without any cost involved. They don't want to hear hard truths. They don't want to be changed. It happens when the church starts to become more concerned about budgets, budgets and numbers in the pews than faithfulness. And so what they do is they try to produce a form of Christianity that is palatable to the world. Beloved, Christianity will never be palatable to unbelievers. It will never taste good unless God gives them a new palate. And do you know how he tends to do that? Through the ministry of the word of God. He gives people a taste for it. But what happens when a church drifts is that the word preaching looks foolish. Oh, you might offend people. You might hurt their feelings. Preach short, short sermons because people have short attention spans. Naaman, 2 Kings 5, Syrian general, had leprosy, and he was told to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. The Jordan? That's a puny little river. Surely there's something stronger out there, isn't there? 
God loves to use the foolish and weak things of the world to accomplish his purposes. And the word of God is central to that. The church that wants to be effective, that wants to be faithful, must keep the word of God at the fore of everything we do. No matter how weak it may look to the outside world, no matter how much it might offend people, the scriptures must remain central. You know, there's always going to be a draw for people to want to hear something less than the word of God. Look with me at at 2 Timothy 4 for a moment. There is always going to be a draw for people to want a watered-down, unbiblical form of Christianity. That's nothing new. It it goes back all the way to the time of Christ. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, last letter Paul wrote, as far as we know, He says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What do they do? They drift away. That's how churches drift, is thinking they can appeal to the flesh by thinking they can appeal to unbelievers. Do you know what is always the result of drifting away? Weak, ineffective churches always result from drifting away from the centrality of the world. We have a little bit of a linguistic dilemma in America. If, if somebody asked you, what did you do this morning? You might say, I went to church. And on the way here, you passed many churches. But you know, when a church ceases to proclaim the word of God, it ceases to be a church. When it settles instead for, for short, story-filled sermonettes that are either silent about the gospel or perhaps actually deny the gospel, the front sign might say church, but that is no church at all. When a church is not saturated with the scriptures, then it is drifting away from being a church at all, and it cannot be faithful. The first and foremost Uh, indispensable ingredient of a local church that is faithful to God is that it must be saturated with scripture it must scripture must be the preeminent authority in the life of the church or it is no church at all but that's not all that's not the only ingredient in fact the Pharisees they were scripture saturated weren't they they knew the Hebrew Bible better than you and I know the New Testament, uh, probably than we ever will in our lifetimes. They would spend days on end debating the scriptures. They would go out to the city gates. They would stand in the temple and debate. It was all self-righteousness, wasn't it? It it was religious duty, but there was no worship or no love of Christ. 
And so not only must a, a faithful church be, be Scripture-saturated, but second, it is Christ-centered. You know, it's actually fairly easy to cultivate churches that are indoctrinated, that know Scripture and are committed to orthodox theological systems, who have all the answers to the gospel. And it is possible to establish one of those and Christ be absolutely foreign to the culture of that church. You see, a Christ-centered church is not only Scripture-saturated, but it's one that revels in who Jesus is and what he's done for us in the gospel. This is a, it's not a church that merely checks boxes of Christian orthodoxy. It's a church that practices in such a way that it exudes deep love and reverence for Christ, and it overflows into how we engage with one another. What's that going to look like? Let me give you a a few thoughts about a church that is Christ-centered. First, it's going to be a church that loves to worship Jesus. You know, that was the problem among the Hebrews. Some of them professed to be Christians, and yet they've distanced themselves from the gathering of the church. So if you go back to chapter 10, these people, they profess to be Christians, but they're no longer gathering with the church. And the author, in verse 25, he warns them, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And he went on to give warnings about distancing yourself from the life of the church. Now, he's not saying, if you don't come to worship, you're not saved. He's saying, if you're saved, you're going to want to worship. If you're saved, this is going to be the heartbeat of your life. You know, the scriptures have no category for someone who professes to be Christian, but doesn't gather with the church in worship. You know, this is especially important for us as we're receiving nominations for officers, for elders and deacons. You know, one of the requirements of this church is that any candidate be actively engaged in the life of the church. I, I, did not, I never would have imagined that even needed to be written as a requirement, but so many of you have told me about churches you've been in where you had elders who were rarely present in the life of the church. Not only is that, that church not a church, but that elder is not an elder per biblical standards. But through the years, we've had people ask, well, why do elders... Why do deacons have to be present in morning and evening worship? That sounds like a lot of expectation. You know, my response to that is, why would you want elders and deacons who don't delight to worship Christ? Look with me at Revelation 5 for a moment. Revelation 5, it's a picture of worship in heaven so just imagine if somebody was peeking into the worship service here if they tuned in for a moment they would walk away with all all sorts of thoughts about what they saw this is in a sense us being able to tune in to worship in heaven and you've got the angels and the heavenly hosts that are joyfully heartily worshiping christ but there's one particular group that's leading the vanguard look at verse 10 The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
Now, there's all sorts of interpretations about who those 24 elders are. I'm not worried about that right now. The point is clear. Elders love to worship. And they don't have to be coaxed into coming to, with the saints. If we want to be a, a Christ-centered church, we need leaders who, who love to worship. A Christ-centered church is also a church that loves one another. You know, it's fairly easy for churches to get doctrine right, but it's possible to be a church whose doctrine is all A+, who utterly fails to love one another. And anyone who knows, who's been around churches long enough knows, it's not always easy to love Christians. It should be. But we're sinners, and Christians will let you down, and Christians will hurt your feelings, and Christians will talk about you behind your back, and Christians will disappoint you. You know, sometimes it's just hard to love each other, isn't it? But in multiple places in Scripture, Jesus teaches us that our love for him will overflow into our love for each other, won't it? John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus is saying for Scots, if you have believed the gospel, that I bore your sins and have adopted you as my sons and daughters into the kingdom, then you're going to treat your fellow siblings in Christ well as well. That love will carry over through you. Now, Two quick applications to that. One, if there's anybody in this congregation that you've wronged and you need to go be reconciled with, would you do that? Because nothing can harm a church more than the division that comes between, uh, between sinners, between hurt feelings, between offenses taken and offenses given. And so if you have anybody that you need to go to and, and confess uh, wronging them, please do so before it turns into a cancer that metastasizes into the life of the congregation. But second uh, application of that is as you think about the potential nominees for church leadership, just ask the question, do these men love the way that Jesus loves? Do they embrace others? How does he treat his wife? How does he treat his children how does he treat people when he doesn't get his own way? That's a really good test, isn't it? And, and, and choose men who are marked by love, not just for God's people, uh, not just for God's word, but for God's people. And then a third aspect of a Christ-centered church is courage. You know, Jesus repeatedly talked about the cost of discipleship and counting the cost. And I spent time with a a friend, not in this church this week, but we we're talking about what the future may look like for Christians in America. And I said, you know, I think it is reality that in a couple of decades, I could face legal difficulty for preaching the gospel. I think it is very likely that the children of this church will face such difficulties for being Christians. You know, we may experience persecution in this world. We may not. We don't know. Only the Lord knows what it will cost you in a decade or two to follow Christ. You know, that's the reason the Hebrew church was falling away, is they were saying, I've counted the cost and it's not worth it. 
They had no courage to stand in the face of coming persecution. And so you might be thinking, well, how do we count the cost when we don't know what's coming? The answer is, up front, Jesus requires the highest possible commitment. Jesus was unashamed to say things like, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. You know, if we were to translate that into the rawest possible terms, he was saying, you've got to be willing to sign your own death warrant because that's what it meant to be a Christian in the first century. You're signing your own death warrant if you follow me. His requirement is that we would follow him no matter what it costs. And when you've made that decision, when you've said, I am going to follow Christ no matter what it costs, you're not surprised no matter what comes. You don't get caught off guard. You are prepared to say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. You know, faithful, Christ-centered churches don't check the cultural climate to see what's popular right now and then act accordingly. They act according to the Word of God, and that takes courage. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to remain committed to Christ, and especially to Christ in terms of biblical sexuality, it's going to cost you, and you're going to have to be courageous. Remaining faithful to the Lord may be very costly. How do we build courage? It's what Hebrews has been saying over and over again. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, because if our eyes are constantly getting dragged away, dragged down to this world, and we begin walking by sight rather than by faith, and we're always worried about the, what the world thinks of us and trying to win the world's approval so that they think we're clever or smart or cool or whatever, if that's what we're living for, we will never have one ounce of courage when it begins to cost us something. We must have our eyes fixed on Christ if we want to be courageous in the midst of a hostile world. So that's the second thing. The, Christ, uh, the faithful church must be Christ-centered. Third, we need to be ministry-minded. You know, I go over to some of y'all's houses, and I see your yard, and it's just beautiful. You know, some of you are, uh, you keep your yard so well-cut and perfectly manicured, and I'm really impressed, and I think, you know, I'm going to do that when I get home. And then I get home, and I look around, and then, you know, I think, there's a lot to be done. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And it's kind of costly. And I'm going I'm to have to keep at it. And I really don't have the time, so I'm not going to worry with it. I'll just admire your yard. You know, I think that's how Christians often view ministry. Yeah, Christians should be practicing hospitality. We should be sharing the gospel. We should be serving in the church. We should be doing all these things. Oh, those, are, those are all really good things. I really admire that. Yeah, yeah, preacher, preach on that. But then we look at all that needs to be done. Disciples need to be made. Swor uh, floors in the church need to be swept. We need to show hospitality. The lift goes on, list goes on. You know, there's a lot to be done, and it could be costly, and I really don't have time for it. I really think that is how most people in pews today view ministry. Yeah, Christians should do that. That's a good thing to do. But I don't really have time for it. It's too costly. 
the faithful church is one in, that is ministry-minded, and I'm not so much talking about the programmatic ministry of the church. I'm talking about the people of the church viewing their life and their time as ministry. Your relationships are ministry. Your workplace is ministry. That's what the gospel-minded church is doing, uh, ministry-minded church is doing, is thinking, how can I use the spheres God has given me to proclaim the gospel in various ways? How can I use the relationships God's given me to make the gospel visible to my neighbors? How can I use the time God has given me to proclaim the gospel to as many people as possible? How can I use the resources God has given me that others might know the gospel? What often happens is Christians say, yeah, that sounds good. We want ministry. We want the gospel to go forth. But, you know, we're going to leave it to the paid professionals. We'll We'll let you and Steve go do that, Alex. I can tell you, we wouldn't be very good at it. There's just two of us. There's 150 of you guys that could be doing it. And we don't have the resources and the connections and the networks and the neighbors that you have. You see, our duty, per Scripture, our duty is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In fact, that's, that's the work of church leadership, equipping you guys to go out of those doors as missionaries to Buford. Look with me at Ephesians 4 for a moment. Ephesians 4, uh, starting at verse 11. This is talking about Christ giving gifts to the church, and he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. What we do here is to equip you to do the work of the ministry in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your home. And so sometimes people will come to us and say, you know, Pastor, this church needs such and such ministry. This church needs this program. And I'll say, great, go do it. You are our ministry. You are our programs. The ministry-minded church doesn't trust, oh, somebody will take care of that. The ministry-minded church views itself as missionaries into whatever world God has placed you. You know, God does raise up some who are diligent mainly in the life of of the church, who who help us to do things behind the scenes. But the vast majority of people, God's calling is for you to focus your ministry outside, to go with the gospel to your neighborhood and to your workplace, to your children, to your spouse. Wherever God has placed you and there is a gospel need, that is your gospel calling. Those are my marching orders is to, to equip you. The end goal is for you to go through those doors as a disciple maker, as a ministry-minded disciple maker. Jesus didn't mean you have to go around the world to make disciples. I think he meant go across the street and, and make disciples. Go about your daily life talking to people about Christ. That should be a normal day in the life of a Christian. And some of you are thinking, you want me to do what? 
You know, if I do all that stuff, if I practice hospitality and I show up to church and I help at the church and I do this and I do that, I'll I'll have no time to do all the things I want to do. It's the problem with living sacrifices, isn't it? They're always getting up off the altar. The reason most of us are not effective in ministry, we're not ministry-minded, is not because we don't know what to do, but because we let uh, everything else eat up our time and our attention. And so you think, oh yeah, it sounds good. Let's do ministry. Let's go share the gospel. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then suddenly, uh, your time is all gone. You can't fit it in with everything else. To go back to the yard illustration, I, I noticed a few years ago, weeds growing in our yard. And at first, I thought, you know, they're green. As long as I keep them cut, it, nobody's going to notice. And then I realized what happens is they expand, and wherever they go, they, they take all the nutrients. They take all the resources that the grass needs. And so they were just slowly killing my grass, and I didn't pay attention. You know, our lives are a lot like that. We, we allow all these good things to occupy our time, don't we? They're, they are good things in many cases. But they eat up so much of our time that when it actually comes to doing worthwhile stuff, we're like, I just can't figure out when to do it. Why? Because we have given ourselves away to everything else. Some of us are so unintentional about ministry that our lives are just overrun with the weeds of worldly distractions. And we accomplish nothing for the sake of Christ. A life that is intentionally prioritized in service to Christ is not extreme. It's not something you do when nothing better comes up. It is basic Christianity. Scripture tells us if you are a Christian, you belong to Christ. He has purchased you by his blood, and therefore your time, your energy, your body, your resources all belong to him. And to profess to be a Christian is to commit yourself to a life of costly, sacrificial, intentional service to King Jesus. If you're not interested in that, if you just want to bounce from one worldly distraction to the next, I can tell you following Jesus is going to be really confusing. He's constantly calling you to to be a living sacrifice and you're constantly running in other directions after the gods of this world. Ministry ought to govern the lives of God's people. How can I be useful to God today? How can I proclaim the gospel? You are God's tool towards that end. Well, finally, We need to be prayer-powered. This mission God has given us is bigger than anything that we can do, and if there were 3,000 of us in this room, it would be bigger than anything we can do. In fact, if we are to be a faithful church that is Scripture-saturated, that is is Christ-centered, that is ministry-minded, we are bound to fail. Unless we are a church that is powered by prayer, unless we are a church that is leaning into God 
day after day in prayer. You know, you come to the end of Hebrews. He's, he's given all these encouragements and exhortations and, and warnings. You come to uh, Hebrews 13, verse 18, and he simply says, pray for us. Pray for us. The, the, the faithful church must be prayer-powered. In the 19th century, uh, five college students were in London, and they wanted to visit Metropolitan Tabernacle Church because probably the most famous pastor of the 19th century preached there. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So these five students arrived early. They were met by a kind gentleman who asked them if they'd like a tour of the church, and, and they were glad to do so. And at one point, he said to them, do you want to see the furnace room? It was a hot July day. But they didn't want to be rude and say, ah, we're not interested in that. Why would we want to see the furnace room? So this guide quietly opened the door to the basement. He said, here's the furnace room. And and what these five college students saw were several hundred people fervently praying for this church service that was going to begin just moments later. Uh, Their guide then introduced himself. It was Charles Spurgeon himself. He wanted them to understand that the power of his ministry wasn't his intellect, his oratory skills, anything to do with his ability. The power of his ministry was the prayers of his people. I can tell you, if somebody as gifted as as Charles Spurgeon needed his people to pray, I need my people to pray all the more. Prayer is the power plant of the church. The furnace room is not normally a a pleasant place, but it's the source of heat in the building. And behind any faithful church is a people committed to prayer. God can and does use a variety of means, but most often what we see is that God chooses to use the prayers of the people in the building of the church. First Scots, do you pray for your church? And do you pray with your church? We, we have midweek prayer meeting every week. Vance Havner, old southern preacher, used to say, the prayer meeting is the thermometer of the church. You can tell how warm it is, how they pray. A church can be scripture-saturated, Christ-centered, ministry-minded, but if it's not prayer-powered, it'll accomplish nothing. Prayer leans into the power of God to build his church, and as we lean into him, he takes the weak and imperfect labors of you and me, of the saints, and he multiplies them a hundred times anything you or I could ever do on our own. It could be really discouraging, I think, to think of all that needs to be done. It can be discouraging to be in ministry. It can be discouraging because there's always one more marriage that's on the rocks. There's always one more person trapped in the grip of sin. There's always one more issue. And for those who are laboring hard for Christ, it can be discouraging because others are not. But as we come to the Lord in prayer, it reminds us it is He who builds His church and not us. We're the day laborers in his vineyard, but he's the the master builder, and what he's been doing for 2,000 years is taking the efforts of weak men and weak women and weak children who are sold out to him, who want to be used by him, who love the glory of his name, and he uses it as this strange recipe to build his church. 
if you or I do all these things, but not in prayer, the church won't stand up to a gentle breeze. But when God's people use God's means and we're pleading with God for his favor, then he will build his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's what the faithful church looks like. How do we apply this? In a sense, the whole sermon was application. But I get two more. How about that? First, pray that God will raise up Scripture-saturated, Christ-centered, ministry-minded, prayer-powered men to be the future elders and deacons in this church. And I don't just mean this year, but for the next hundred years or until Christ returns, that he would furnish us with, with godly, qualified leaders to help build this into a faithful church. Pray expectantly for that and then accept nothing less than that. Second, would you just take inventory of your life? You know, think about your, your day planner. How did you spend yesterday? How did you spend this week? What did you do for the kingdom? I know it, it was no problem for you to go and, and, and spend time with friends. It was no problem for you to go and, and do your leisure stuff. We, have, we never have to have our arm twisted to do our own will. That's easy. But how many of us are doing, actually intentionally spending time for the kingdom? I know you agree with this stuff. It's all good in theory. Like when I look at your backyard and think that's great, but it's not for me. But are you intentionally living a life of of laboring for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? Take inventory of your life and where you see that things need to change Repent and change them. Reprioritize your life uh, so that your life will be reflective of what it is to be a faithful church member so that together we can become a faithful church. Let's pray together. Lord, these are hard truths, but I think they're biblical truths. There is going to be a tendency in some of our hearts to bristle against it, to push back, because we really enjoy going our own way. We enjoy being in charge of our own lives and living for ourselves. That is is simply our own fleshly tendency, and all of us have to fight it to varying degrees. Lord, I pray that you would subdue that sin nature and that we would humbly line up behind the Lord Jesus and receive our marching orders to go into all the world and make disciples. Father, I pray that you would help us to that end and that you would bear fruit through us for time and eternity. 